getting ready, and, uh, and I am glad for you this morning uh, for being here. I'm glad to be here. Praise the Lord. And uh, as I stand behind the sacred desk this morning, I'm under obligation by my debt to the blood of Jesus who ransomed my life and owns my soul to deliver the truth to this generation without regard to whether they like it or don't like it, whether who's going to receive it or isn't going to receive it. That is all in the hands of the Holy Spirit. But we really need to sanctify our pulpits across this land and set them apart. The fear of God needs to come upon the pulpit again. It's not going to happen in the congregation until the fear of God starts falling in the pulpits and preachers start coming to their knees and cry out out of fear and dependence upon, start losing sleep because they're concerned about about God really being in our midst and seeking Him for it. Can you say amen? amen? John chapter 18 Jesus is standing before the governor, Pilate. He's on trial. He's on trial for his life. Uh, Pilate thinks he's, he's going to be able to save Jesus. The Jews are convinced they're going to be able to kill him. Jesus knows he's there in the absolute perfect will of the Father. He, in fact, he's there because he went there. They didn't drag him there. He, he went there. And so Jesus replies to Pilate's questioning about whether he's a king, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. I want to repeat that. I want you to think about what you're hearing. Jesus says to the governor, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus replied, you say, I am a king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone say with me the truth. The truth. For this reason, for this purpose I was born, I came into the world, Jesus said, to testify of the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. This morning, I want to deal with just one more kingdom truth in review. And that is number six, the kingdom truth that the kingdoms of God and the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of God and of the world are in conflict with each other. They are at war with each other. They are not at peace. They do not share common ground. There is a divine struggle and a tension between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world is referred to by Jesus as the kingdom of darkness, or the kingdom of Satan. And 1 John, John the Apostle said, the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked ones. Satan sits upon his throne of darkness, and the whole world sits in his lap. And just imagine, with that picture in mind, what the inference is. Jesus paid a very high price so that every soul that's humble would have an opportunity to hear the truth. My concern today is not whether I'm able to tailor the truth to suit people's needs or their desires, but my great concern is that people are going to be honest and humble enough to hear the truth. Do we have a generation that is able to hear the truth? Do we have people that are humble enough that they want the truth? I was, and I know exactly what I'm talking about because before I became a Christian, I was a, 
I was in a very dark place. I was an atheist. I wasn't running from church. I'd never been to church. I wasn't running from religion. I never had religion. I, I wasn't trying to find a spiritual truth. I had no idea what spiritual truth was. I was living the existentialist life of a moment-by-moment -moment secular person who had no idea that there was even such a thing as God. And one night, in a matter of moments, I went from living deep within the caverns of darkness in the lap of Satan to having my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and knowing the Almighty, Eternal God enough to say, Father, Amen. and that Jesus was Lord. It was miraculous, but that's called getting saved. That's what God does. But I do know this, that as dark as I was and as filled with devils as I was, I had a humble heart. I didn't know it, but God knew it, that wanted the truth. There was something in me that just wanted the truth. I wasn't out looking for it because I didn't know there was a truth to find. That girl in the back would never have hung out with me, much less married me, had that not been true about me. Am I telling the truth, honey? It is true. I, there was a sweet guy in there under all of that. So man is always looking at the outward. Man's always looking at the way people act, the way they dress and everything, and going, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a person bound for hell. And, um, you know, and then they look at, you know, really clean, nice, presentable people, and they go, you know, I bet they're a Christian. Oh, no, you should be a Christian. We want, we're going to come. We're going to try to get you saved. You see, Man looks on the outward. God is looking at the heart. What I want to talk to you about this morning is that the Lord wants the gospel to be heard by everyone who's got a heart to hear it. And we're the people that have got to deliver it. We're the people that have got to take it to the world. Hallelujah. But if we don't get this one thing that I want to talk to you about this morning, if we don't get it straight, and if we don't get back on track as the, as the, as the body of Christ, if we don't pull the church back into the kingdom of God, we are not going to reach this generation as the Lord has called for us to reach it. Jesus said this. He said, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. I've come today to talk about the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world because there is a peace treaty between the modern church and the kingdom of sin. And that peace treaty is high treason against the kingdom of God. The modern church has entered into a truce with the sin that Jesus gave his life to free us from. That sin that Jesus gave his life to free us from is described in Romans chapter 118 where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against Yes, God is against something. The wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. What does that mean? The sin that Jesus died to set us free from, to indeed snatch us out of the, 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 the jaws of, is the sin of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now that sounds like fancy philosophical or religious talk, but I'm going to put it into a simple term for you. In other words, that sin is the intentional suppression of the truth about God, the truth about Jesus Christ, because of something that you want that's unrighteous. Every time a person turns away from hearing the truth, they are suppressing the truth, not because they don't have access to it, not because they deep down in their spirit don't have a witness that it's true, but because they want something else more. And that something else is always something that's unrighteous. The reason people will not hear the gospel, the reason people want to silence the gospel is because they want something evil. They want something unrighteous. And that, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry, 
is the plain and simple unvarnished truth about the world and its stand before God. You know, the primary goal of the kingdom of God is to free people from sin. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that those that would believe in him should have everlasting life. Well, they have to be snatched from the grasp of death before they can have life. And uh, they are in the grip of sin, in the lap of the wicked one, as I said, in, the Bible talks about in 1 John. But the kingdom of God is manifest by breaking that hold and freeing them and bringing them into freedom from captivity. If you haven't come out of captivity, you are not free. If you are still in bondage, then you're still in bondage. There is a kingdom called the kingdom of darkness, and it is a kingdom of darkness, of slavery to sin. But in the kingdom of God, there is no slavery to sin. There are people who have been made righteous through God's grace and His mercy by the precious blood of the Lamb. Their spirits have been set free. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And though the, though the memory traces of sin still occasionally move through their mind and manifest in their body, they throw it off upon the altar of God as quickly as it happens because it's unnatural to them. Their flesh wakes up with them one morning and drags them off into something silly and something of their ancient life. But when they fall into it, they're not comfortable. They're not at home with sin anymore. They're not in the kingdom of darkness. And they run to the light. And the Lord said, so they are children of the light. But I'm here to tell you there is a difference. The primary goal of the kingdom of God is to set people free from sin. But the modern church, there's a problem with the modern church. There's a very deep, serious problem with the modern church today. Because the modern church today has made its primary goal not to free people from sin, but to free people from condemnation. The goal of the church today is to soothe people's feelings of condemnation. The condemnation that is there in their life and is occurring because of the sin that they're engaged in. Because of the, because of the corruption they participate in. Because of the addictions they give themselves to. Because of the pornography. Because of the lying. Because of the cheating. Because of the stealing. Because of the rejoicing in evil. We have become a spectator society. Now, I am not up here to preach against TV or against movies. I do my share, fair share of watching things. But I will say this. We have become a voyeur society. And while we may not go out and personally engage in corruption and sin and the filth of the world. And I call it the filth of the world not because I'm prudish. I'm probably the most unprudish pastor that still believes in righteousness that you're going to meet. But I call it filth because it is what pollutes the lives of precious people that Jesus loves. It's filth because of what it does to people. And if, and if you, if you want to make it up and, and make it pretty and, and everything, just know this, that you are trying to sanctify, you are trying to cleanse something that is full of death and is going to take people to hell if they don't get set free from it. Listen, we are not going to win the world if we don't go back to understanding that the world needs to not be won by being convinced, they need to be won by being delivered. They need to be delivered by the power of sin, not by the condemnation that they feel because they practice sin. Instead, the modern church today tries to soothe the condemnation produced by people's sin with fake grace. Grace is not the permission to stay the same. It's the power to be different. It's the power to be more, not, to, not the permission to stay less. But fake grace, fake grace isn't based on 
come up hither. Come to me and I will set you free. Fake grace says, don't bother. I'll come to you and I understand. Fake grace never comforts anyone. Nobody's ever comforted in their sin. When we pat them on the back and say, it's all right, God understands. That's only a momentary relief to know that God understands. Listen, let me tell you, every drug addict, every alcoholic who either is or was a Christian or knew God or knows God in their life but is bound perhaps in some secret sin, Satan just comes into their life and has way with every one of them know and understand that there is a world of difference between the feeling and the actual freedom that we get when we're set free and that temporary little comfort. And it's fleeting that says God understands. Every addict knows God understands. Every addict, whatever the addiction is, every one of them know whether you're addicted to power or addicted to people. Every one of them knows God understands. It brings no deliverance. God understanding does not bring a bit of deliverance to anybody. And yet the modern church today has made its goal. Preachers literally have reorchestrated their entire ministry with the goal in mind, we want to bring people to a place of peace with themselves. We want to help people to get free from condemnation. That path is clear. It was called the narrow way. And no one comes into the kingdom of God where they truly are set free from sin unless they come through that path. And um, saying God understands does nothing for people. The reality is, is that we need to explain to people, be brave enough to tell them that about the truth about sin, repentance, and forgiveness. Forgiveness is wonderful only when we've repented of our sin and acknowledged that if you don't even let people repent and forsake their sin, they're not going to experience forgiveness. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Weak, weak preachers who desire to be liked, they want their churches to be liked by the world, they want the current popular culture to uh, approve and put its, its mark of approval on their church, on their worship service, on their, on their messages. They want to be written up in the newspapers. They want to be talked about out in society, not up in heaven, out in society. They want to be liked by people. They want to be thought well of by people because they think that's what's going to grow their church because growing their church has become the objective of their ministry rather than taking the gospel to the poor. Nobody wants to grow their church with a bunch of broken down poor sinners. People want to grow their church with, with tithers who've been impressed. But real tithers are transformed people who have gone through the blood and stay in the blood and they stay repentant and they, they, they walk as children of the kingdom. Can you say amen? amen? Modern preachers are taking the deal that Jesus passed up on. Satan said, worship me. I'll give you all these kingdoms. Are you listening to me? I'll, I'll give you the keys. These kingdoms are mine. The devil said, look at them. They're all sitting in my lap. Which one do you want? I'll open the doors to any kingdom you want, Jesus. Just acknowledge me. Acknowledge me. Worship me. Endorse me. Talk about me. Do it my way. Jesus said, mm, nah, I'm not going to take that deal. I don't need to. They belong to me already. And I'm on my way to pick them up. You can't see it, but I'm on my way to get them. But see, the dumb preachers, they let pride, they let pressure, whatever it is, but they go running after the latest books, 
the conferences, the videos, the online, whatever it is that's talking about how to grow your church, how to get them to like you, how to reorganize your praise team, how to have the latest music that appeals to young people, and all of these different things are the different programs. You know, there are ex there's a, it's a multi-million dollar industry analyzing within the church, not secular, within the multi-million dollar industry, analyzing the world and how to connect. If I see that word connect, I am, I used to like the word connect. I hate the word connect now <laughs> because, because every nut in his brother is talking about we need to connect with the world. And the more they connect with the world, the more disconnected they get with the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them in the beginning how to connect with the world. He said, leave the world for a little while. Go to the upper room, get in one accord and wait. And don't come out until you've connected with the Holy Ghost. Then you just come on out. Matter of fact, you won't be able to stay in there. Holy Ghost is going to come out. You're going to come out with him. Hallelujah. And you know those guys came out and they were subversive. They were trying to connect with the culture of their world. They were a subversive kingdom and I'm telling you, they were absolutely saturated with the reality that they were a subversive kingdom to the world. They knew because they had been there that Jesus suffered violence to extract them from the jaws of Satan. They knew that he had died to break the power of sin and there was no getting away from it. There was no sugarcoating it. And it's treason against God that the church today does not offer deliverance from sin. It is treason against the gospel. It is high treason against the kingdom of God because it has turned churches into religious clubs operating somewhere outside the perimeters of the kingdom of God. In order to assist modern preachers in their effort to try to ease up the tension between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, remember that's what we're talking about. Kingdom of God, kingdom of darkness. And they are in conflict. There is a tension between them. And so the modern preacher is trying to create a buffer, a buffer zone. Can't we dialogue? Can't we have some talk here? Can't we open up our doors? Can't we embrace one another? Can't we get along? Because the modern preacher sees the success of his ministry as, a, as the kind of oil on the water. He's not interested in the oil of the Holy Spirit. He sees himself as, as the peacemaker rather than Jesus who died a violent death and destroyed and snatched the keys to death, hell, and the grave. So he wants to ease that tension, the conflict between the two kingdoms, because he knows, I mean, I'll have people streaming through the doors if all of a sudden we're a friend of the world. If the world is at home here and they can stay the world, my goodness, who wouldn't want that? I get to be chief, big chief sinner, and have the endorsement of Jesus. I can run around, I can be a Christian, and I can go get a little life talk once a week. But in order to assist with that effort to relax the tension between the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, Satan has resurrected something called the doctrine of Balaam. How many of you know what the doctrine of Balaam is? All right. Let me just read. It's mentioned uh, in the 24th, 25th chapters of Numbers and in Revelation chapter 2, where in the message to the church at Pergamos, the Lord said this, But I have a few things against you. You have some people there who follow the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam, who instructed King Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Therefore, repent. 
Because if you don't, I will come against you quickly and I will make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. I don't want Jesus coming in here to make war against you or me with the sword of his mouth. I need his mouth to speak words of life, not cutting me to pieces. So what is this doctrine of Balaam? Whatever it is, Jesus does not like it. And it is all over the church today. It's all over the church. And you'll recognize it when I talk about it. Back in the Old Testament, as Israel's coming out of the uh, slavery to Egypt, they're on their way up into the promised land. The Moabites, they are a big nation. And the Midianites, they're, they're, they, two nations are kind of together. And Israel was going, was all around them. It's going right up past them. The king of the Moabites, a, a guy named Balak, King Balak, uh, he was scared to death of Israel because all of Israel's enemies were being defeated. The Israelites could not be defeated. And they were defeating everybody who resisted him. So King Balak goes to the Midianite chiefs and says, we got to do something. We, this, if we don't, we're finished. These people are just going to consume us. And so Balaam hires a prophet. Uh, Balak, rather, hires a prophet named Balaam. How many of you have heard of Balaam, the prophet Balaam? So he hires this prophet. I, I'd love to go into the history of Balaam and what he actually was. I don't have time for it. But he hires Balaam. You can read about it in the 24th chapter of Numbers. And he says, listen, I will give you, and he starts, gives him a list, gold, camels, women, whatever you want, um, I just want you to do this one little thing for me. Um, we got this mountain here where you can go up and you can look over and you can see the whole camp of Israel. I want you to go up there and curse them. Curse them good. Get God to curse them because nobody can defeat them. But if you curse them, then we can defeat them. They won't be a problem. So Balaam goes up on the mountain and he says, listen, I'm telling you right now, before he goes up, he says, I'm telling you, you can't curse these people. To one degree or another, he actually was a prophet and, and saw things from God and heard from God. He said, these people are blessed of God. They're God's people. You can't curse them. He said, look, just go. Just try. Just try. Here's a little more money, a bonus. Just try. And he gets him up on the mountain, and he looks over them, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God starts moving on Balaam, and he opens his mouth, and Balak's like, oh, good, here it comes. And he starts blessing him. The lion of Judah, the lion is in the midst of them. He has roared. Nobody can overcome. And he starts prophesying how they cannot be defeated. And Balak's going, no, no, shut up. Stop it, stop it. So that was a big flop. And so he says to, he says to Balaam, um, look, we got another mountain over here. Maybe if you look at them from another direction. So he takes them on another mountain, and he gets them up on another mountain, and he says, you know how it is when God tells you no, but you want to turn that no into a yes. So he, Balaam says, you're wasting your time. He goes up there, and it gets even worse. He prophesies. So when it's all said and done, Balak is furious. And he says, look, just, just go home. Here's your money. Just go home. But before he goes, Balak says, look, you can't curse them. I can't curse them. He said, but I know how you can get God to curse them. I've got a little secret strategy that I could tell you. And if you can act on it, if you can apply it, they will curse themselves. And Balak said, tell me, what is it? And it was called the doctrine of Balaam. And it's very simple. The doctrine of Balaam was, get your good-looking young women who worship idols to start hanging around the perimeter of the camp of Israel. And the young Israelis will see them and like them, and they'll start chatting, chatting each other up, and just start sending them into the camp of Israel, all friendly-like, and let them begin to develop relationships. Once they begin to develop relationships, they'll start having sex together, and they'll start getting married. Once that happens they will have a relationship 
they will be invested in one another. And two things will happen. Number one, the girls will start enticing the guys to come to their temples with them and worship idols. And that started happening. And the other thing is, the men will not want to fight the Midianites because we're family now. We've got Midianite and Moabitess wives. I've got, a, I've got a Midianite girl. I love her. She's awesome. Has some strange beliefs, but, you know. But look, she's pregnant. We're going to have a child. So immediately the doctrine of Balaam was send demonically, demonic Trojan horses in and let the, let the people of God receive them and have relations with them. Once they have a relationship, they won't like it. If you have to start cutting ties with sin, they won't like it because they are bound with sin. They've got a relationship with it. Well, this quickly spread. And Israel was on its way to being wiped out without the Midianite army or the, Mo the army of the Moabites having to fire a single shot. Are you with me so far? You See what's going on here? So God releases a spreading plague that quickly starts to spread. By the time it's done, I think it was like 20, 26,000 people. They were up to 26,000 people that had died. So it wasn't just a whole bunch of people died all at once. They just started dying. And they started dying in droves. And so immediately Moses is furious with the people. And he cries out to God, and God says, the first thing you have to do is you have to get the leaders that are responsible for participating in this and leading their people, and you have to hang them. And so he went throughout all the tribes, and he got all the leaders that led those people into those relations, and he hung them. Hung them publicly so that everyone could see their corpses swinging. He, was, he knew, you think, well, that's brutal, that's horrible. It was the Old Testament. But it happened, and God was involved. Now listen to me, because you need to know how serious God is about these things. What was at stake was Israel. They had just been delivered. They hadn't even come into the promised land, and they were about to be wiped out before they ever inherited what God had for them. Do you want to be wiped out before you fulfill your purpose? Do you want to actually cross the goal line and hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or do you, want to, do you want to be taken out by the enemy? They were being taken out by the enemy. God said, kill all the leaders, hang them up, let the people see it. Immediately, all Israel goes into a state of trembling and remorse, and they all gather at the tent. They go to the tabernacle, and they are wailing, and they're crying out, and they're having a gigantic repentance service. And the leaders and all the people are crying out to God in repentance. In the middle of that, one of the princes, one of the princes, a guy named Zimri, and oddly enough, his name Zimri means musical. So this prince, he's a, he is a Jewish royal. He has a Midianite wife. It doesn't say she was his wife, just says he had a Midianite woman, but but in the studies, you can tell he, he was obviously married to her. And she was not only a Midianite princess, but she was the daughter of a Midianite demon worshiper. And she was an idolater in the first degree. And he had hooked up with this gal. In the middle of the repentance service, he comes walking into church with her. You know what? We have a term for that. It's called remorse without repentance. And it is killing the church. Our altars today are filled, filled with altar calls, with people that are up expressing remorse with no intention whatsoever to stop sinning. None. Because their pastors have told them, it's okay, God understands. One of the pastors of one of the nation's largest and most prominent churches, he's had a, 
he's had, there have been struggles with him because he keeps leading his congregation in sin. They finally fired the guy. He's as popular, and the world loves this guy. He was on TV all the time. Secular shows that have a vested interest in wanting to castrate the body of Christ, to take the truth away and drag it down and make it a secular, and make it a, a, a secular religion. They would have this guy on and they would interview him because he was publicly condoning homosexuality. He refused to stand against that. I'm just picking out one. That's always the one the world brings up because they want to know, where do you stand? And he would not say that the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. Of course, it says all forms of fornication are wrong and a whole bunch of other things that we practice sometimes with impunity. But the fact is, that finally the church had to cut him loose, get rid of him. This is happening all over the country. Pastors that are have relaxed the standards and as much as told their people, this is no longer sin, this is something. You know what they do? They just push it into that gray area that it's between you and God. But they don't bother to get the Bible out and say, I'm coming over to your house Thursday evening. We're going to have a little talk. And I want to show you in the Word, since you asked me about uh, doing drugs, since you asked me about fornication, since you asked me about homosexuality, since you asked me about shady business dealings, on Thursday I'll be over, I'm going to have the Bible, and we, we'll find the answers together. It doesn't matter what I believe or what I think. I'm not coming to tell you what I think. Let's look at the Bible together. See, that's what a pastor should be doing is take people to the Word and say, let's see what the Word says. I'm going to come to your house and we're going to talk about what the Word says. And then, then and only then can you say it's between you and God. Because it's not between them and God until you've given them God's Word. You're just, you're just turning them over to the devil because you don't want to do your job. We got a lot of lazy preachers that don't want to do their job. Are you listening to me? The year that I was born in 1954, the government passed something called the Johnson Amendment. I don't really expect any of you to know what the Johnson Amendment is, but it has LBJ's name on it because the Johnson Amendment was an IRS ruling that changed forever the status of the church and its ability to get up and in it, from its pulpits tell people about the elections that they were going to be voting in. The Johnson Amendment is what made it illegal for 501c3 corporations, including churches, to take a public position on any piece of legislation or any candidate. You could not get in a pulpit. That's what they said. Or you will lose your 501c3. Now, a lot of churches have never bothered with that. But you know, there were millions of preachers, lazy, who didn't want to get in the pulpits and instruct their people about these candidates stand for evil. These candidates stand for righteous. These pro-life candidates, these pro-abortion candidates, they didn't want to mess with that stuff. They didn't want to deal with it. And, in, and when the government stepped in and brought down that ruling, boy, a lot of preachers just went, oh, you've just made my job a lot easier. Now I don't have to talk to my congregation. In fact, um, you know, it's been several decades. That Johnson Amendment was passed the year I was born. I'll tell you, the way God has made me, I think I was born in response to the Johnson Amendment. I feel like God has had a prophetic purpose for my birth, and all my life I've been a trajectory heading right at that error. Amen. The fact is that it is the responsibility of God's people to judge between what is right and what is wrong. And yet, these preachers browbeat their congregations all day long, saying, Don't judge. You know, Facebook preaching. You can't judge. Don't judge. Can't judge what the Bible says. First Corinthians, he that is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. I like that. I love that. <clears throat> I love being in that position. He, that, he or she that is spiritual is the one that is submitted to the kingdom of God. And the Bible says God expects you to judge all things. The word judge is not condemn. It's appraise. God expects the church to appraise, to critique. And then, where do you make those appraisals? You let the Word of God make those appraisals. 
we have taken discernment out of the body of Christ. We've said in order to connect with the world, we've got to stop all that. We've got to stop having any positions about anything. You know, <clears throat> the extreme is always what gets pointed at. You know that crazy church from somewhere in Kansas, every time there was a, there was a, a funeral service for a fallen soldier, they'd go there and badmouth them. And, and uh, there was, I forgot the name of it, West, Westboro Baptist, exactly. It's always those extremes that get pointed to, and they say, see, the, we, the, those Christians have got to stop condemning. Well, yeah, that's probably an infinitesimal, you know, minute portion of a percentage of the real body of Christ. Christians don't do that. They don't act like that. So the point is that here this Zimri comes, and his, the Midianite woman he's got, her name's Cosby. And the word Cosby means liar. So musical has wed the liar. And that lie is all over music ministries today in churches. Music ministries and churches are infested with the lie that if we don't adopt the culture of the world, if we don't look like them, bounce like them, put all of our pretty kids up there, to act like them, and if we don't give them the music they want, we're not going to connect with the, with the world. You might, probably won't connect with the world, but if you'd like to connect with souls, then stop believing the lie, because Jesus said in the upper room, and I think we were back there about 10 minutes ago, and let me finish that thought. Jesus said, let me tell you how to connect with the world. I'm going to send the Holy Ghost, and he'll connect with the world. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will lead and guide you into all truth and show you the things that are to come. He's the one that will do the work that you need to be available to him. So let me wrap this story up about. So Cosby and Nimri are in there, and he brings his Midianite wife in to show her off in the service where they're repenting about having relations with the world, he's in there bragging about how he can be worldly. Are you listening to me? So there is the grandson of Aaron the priest. His name's Phineas. And Phineas is an, an amazing young man. He sees this guy with his wife. He immediately runs, grabs a spear, and charges through the crowd and skewers Zimri and Cosby with one spear, kills them both, right through the midsection. It's automatic. He acts not impulsively. The Bible says, well, I'll tell you, out of God's own mouth, God said to Moses right then and there, my wrath has just been abated. And because of Phineas, I have stopped the plague. And because he was zealous with my zeal, none of you, you were all too busy wailing and, and crying. But you weren't ready to do anything about it. Are you listening? You were all wailing and putting on a good religious show, but nobody was willing to actually do the hard work of reformation. You want revival, but you don't want to reform. It doesn't work like that. Because the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are in eternal opposition. And one day the kingdom of darkness will be no more. And the kingdom of God will rule and supersede. There is never going to be an assimilation of sin into the kingdom of God ever. It's never going to happen. And so... When we went through the cross of Christ and we left the world behind us, we should have stayed on that path. Paul said in, in Ephesians, I thank God for the cross because through the cross I have been freed from the world and I'm dead to the world, but the world is also dead to me. So the plague stopped and Phinehas, God said, is a hero. And so God pronounced a blessing on Phinehas. Listen to this. He said, because that Phinehas had the zeal of God, 
I make my covenant of peace with him. And my covenant of peace shall be upon him all the days of his life and upon his sons and his sons, and they shall forever be priests before the Lord. And some of you want to get your kids saved. You want to have God's covenant of peace upon your household. Do what Phinehas did. Are you willing to take a spear and put it right through the gut of what is destroying your kids' lives, what's leading them astray, what has lied to them? All the other people, all the other parents, everyone else in church is at the altar crying and praying, oh God, please stop the plague. But only one man did what was necessary to make that plague stop. I know, I know this is not making anybody happy this morning or popular, but I, I told you when I got up here, I have a responsibility, an accountability. I answer to the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm more afraid of, of committing treason against the blood of Christ than I am having a whole bunch of people say, oh, I'm never going to watch that video anymore. Listen to me. I've got to wrap this up. We've run out of time. The marriage between modern preachers and the world's culture of sin is setting the world up for the great falling away. We're headed towards it. Not us, because if you're with me and I'm with you, we have no intention of going there. We know where we're going. We know where we stand. We don't, we don't say that in any other kind of spirit other than a broken heart. And knowing that it were not for the grace of God, there'd be no way. But let me, in case you haven't read this in a while, this will take from the New Testament, when John says in 1 John 2, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. Do you see? Constantly, if you read the New Testament, all the way through, every one of those people, Peter, John, James, Paul, they constantly underscored the kingdom of God is in opposition to the kingdom of the world. They do not blend. They do not mix. Be in the world, but don't be of the world. And so he says, Whosoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, and it's lusts. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Really, if you break that down, what John is saying to us there, when he speaks of the world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, he's not saying that you can't ever have anything that your flesh likes. You can't uh, um, ever be happy that you or your kids or somebody achieved something. He's not talking about, about those sorts of things. He's not saying um, uh, lust, lust of the eyes that you can, oh, I saw, I, I saw a, a, a thing I want to get for our house. I better not do that. He's not saying that. What he's saying is to become the kind of person who everything that suits you, and fills you and gives you confidence is the world. You're not made happy by the kingdom of God. You can enjoy going places and doing things as long as you know that those things are only enjoyable because every moment I'm in communion with the Lord who makes my life enjoyable and that I don't depend on those things for my happiness. My dependency is not in those things. As I cruise through this world, I'm at the age now where I realize there's a lot of things that I wanted to see, I wanted to do, and I wanted to have, and they're never going to happen. I'm at that point. Many of you are at that point. You know that a lot of the ambitions you had, you're never going to have those things that you wanted. You're never going to have to live in the big mansion or have those experiences. But you've got the point where you realize, I'm, but I'm fine without it. And you've realized that having Jesus is having life. In fact, you realize, you know what, I don't have a lot of time left. And with what little time I've got left, I, wanted, I want to do everything I can for the kingdom of God. I have an eternity that I'm preparing for. 
Somebody say amen. I want to read you this. Uh, oh, by the way, let me just tell you. The zeal of Phinehas, I believe the spirit of Phinehas is about to come back to the church. I believe many Phinehases in the form of men and women and young people are about to rise up and show up on the scene and rescue the church. As many as will come, will come along with them back into the kingdom of God. The church has been outside the kingdom of God for a long time. And I believe God is going to send the spirit of Phinehas to call whosoever will in the church back into the kingdom of God. That's where the revival will come from. Now let me close with this verse that speaks for itself. It's Hebrews chapter 12. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who is speaking to us from heaven. When God spoke to Moses on, from Mount Sinai, his voice then shook the earth. But now he makes another promise saying, quote, Once again I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. You say, Nick, doesn't that scare you? I mean, you're praying God will consuming fire. No, not a bit. Not a bit. His fire is agape. His fire is love. His zeal is, is in his love. And his, he loves me. I've received his love. So you know what? When that fire comes on me, everything this pleases him will get burned up. I'm cool with that. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I might squirm. Might complain a little bit. No, Lord, not that. Yes. There it goes. But I will shine with life and with glory. I'll be free. I'll be happy. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? amen. This is what we need to talk to sinners about. This is what we need to talk to unsaved people. We need to be honest and tell them, you are a captive of a kingdom, an evil kingdom. That is using your sin. You have sin in your life. And, the, and Satan is using it to make you turn away from the truth. Please listen to what I'm saying. We need to reach out and, and, and try to connect. Here's that word. But connect truth with their hearts. Speak truth. If you want to make a connection, that's the only connection that's going to matter. Tell them that Jesus wants to deliver them from their sins. And then let the chips fall where they may. If they say, I have no sin, then you have to be like Jesus who let the rich young ruler walk away. And the Bible says Jesus was grieved for he loved him, but he had to let him go. Jesus was not going to modify his statement. He said, if you want to be complete, if you want to be, be a whole, then sell all that you have. Give to the poor and come and follow me. Oh, the last thing we want to be is poor. But you know, death is going to make you poor. Life makes us poor. So let's be rich in our poverty, rich in the grace, rich in the love of God. We need to get back to the kingdom. Can you say amen? Close your Bible. Stand with me. We